Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Profitability Podcast. I'm your host, Adi Pinar. I've always felt that the act of making something and sharing it with the world requires a very specific mindset. And that is why this podcast exists. I wanted to talk to a diverse set of guests who are all making something to learn more about their craft, process, and motivation for that. Every week on this podcast, I have a conversation with a fascinating guest, whether they're an entrepreneur, artist, musician, author, poet, or artisan, to learn more about how they live a life that is uniquely profitable. Today I talk with Marie Prokopetz, who has had a self-reclaimed wild ride of a professional career. Today she spends the majority of her professional time as co-founder of FYI, a tech startup. Earlier this year, Marie received Product Hunt's very prestigious Maker of the Year Award, which only slightly surpassed the awesome title she held in a previous employment gig, that being Director of Tequila. Something that I often ponder is just how labels influence our work or the way we see ourselves. I know I've got a love-hate relationship with the term entrepreneur, for example, and I wonder whether there are others who feel similar about the labels that are attached to them. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Marie is to hear her perspective, especially after being announced as Maker of the Year. We also spoke about how she knows when to make a change, how a student mindset helps her take on supposedly risky things, as well as the habits and disciplines that have helped her in her journey thus far. Something that really stood out for me was this notion that when we go into something with an attitude of learning, that there really can't be any failure. And that is something Marie and I explored in depth. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Marie Prokopetz. Hey Marie, thanks for being here today. Hey, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I'm going to kind of just parachute in here instead of getting you to share your whole kind of bio, which I had to kind of you know, look up. So kind of a couple of things here and then I kind of want to get you started here. So you mentioned that your career has been a wild ride thus far, right? From founding, you know, multiple products at this stage, right? But also working corporate, working on multi-billion dollar kind of M&A deals to actually winning awards for comedy writing. And then in between there, I've got meditation, burning sage and collecting crystals. So <laughs> like for anyone that hasn't kind of met Marie just yet, or hasn't heard from you, I'm wondering out of all those things in your career thus far, like what's the single accomplishment that most stands out for you? Wow. Let's see. Well, I would say my crystal collection might be the biggest accomplishment because it's taken the longest time to accumulate. But um, I would say actually just going from outside of tech, so like a completely different industry. I have a master's in English Lit. I, like you said, like did M&A for a long time and worked in corporate, moving from that world into the startup world. And just kind of quickly getting up to speed and then founding FYI. I think that's the biggest accomplishment. It's it's not so much like the founding of a business itself. It's just this major kind of seismic shift and all the learning that had to happen really rapidly. And mentioned that learning and the kind of the rapid nature thereof, like what would your kind of your preconceived ideas about what that learning curve or that transition would actually look like? So it's funny. I'm not one of those people that ponders if I can do something <laughs> like before I do it or kind of worries about how difficult it'll be. I just do things. I have this kind of gravitational pull towards different things and I don't judge it 
or kind of put it into a framework like, okay, should I do this and think about the risks and rewards and all that? I just do it. And I think because I follow my kind of various desires or pulls that it just naturally things happen. So it's like, I don't put up those barriers. I don't say, oh, it's, it's really challenging. How would somebody actually learn, you know, how to build a business and all the kind of startup frameworks and tech in general, how would someone learn that? And then you start to think about it and you think, oh, that's really hard. No, I just do it. <laughs> so I think for me, that's been probably the, the single biggest factor to my being able to have this, like you said, wild ride career covering so many different topics. Um, I just don't think about what I can't do. I just follow what pulls me. Do you think that kind of that pull or your awareness thereof, like, has that changed over time? Hmm. No, <laughs> I think it's always been consistent. Yeah. Okay. I'll rephrase that mm -hmm. question slightly then. Like when you felt that pull and you've gone in that direction, has there been like any adverse, you know, consequence of that? And how do you yeah. feel about that? Like did that change your kind of behavior when you felt that pull in future? Yeah, actually, I, I am thinking of one thing that will happen, which is, I guess, as I've gotten older, there's slightly more apprehension of making these major changes. I think when you're a bit younger, you just feel more free and you don't worry about, oh, what will my resume look like? Or what will people think of me? So there's, there's a bit more of that. And I think the funny thing is my parents are probably the single most, the biggest factor of the consequences of doing different things. Like I, I definitely got a lecture when I decided to get my master's in English literature, the family sat me down. It was a big lecture about that because that's not something that anyone would approve of normally. Um, you know, they like kind of like go into something more scientific or business. And but the funny thing is I got kind of a similar lecture when I left my job, my kind of stable corporate job into the unknown. And then now that I'm a founder, it's like, what are you doing? We don't know what to tell people like what your job is. And what about stability? And, you know, you still could get a job. Do you know your worth? Like, have you talked to recruiters? So that's stable, but it's kind of the biggest consequence. And obviously you don't want to disappoint the people that you're close to either. I would say my parents probably feel the uncertainty more than I do, but then they project it back onto me. <laughs> Something resonates there, Maria. Like, I know for me, kind of going from my first successful startup to my second, the second time was, and I think for many people, this was counterintuitive. I also went into that thinking, like, second time is totally going to be easier, right? You have the playbook, you have the experience, you have a little bit more capital, you have the network, all of those things. And it was actually harder for me. And what I realized ultimately was kind of the two broad factors and why that was harder was by the second time I had kids, when I started Convergio, my youngest was, oh, I mean, he'd just been born, right? It was about around about that time. So that and I think knowing, having gone through a similar journey at least before, like it almost felt like I was, I saw some of those risks beforehand, which made me more risk aware at least. And knowing that this wasn't just me for whom there'll be consequences if I kind of screw this up going forward. So I think, and there's definitely a part of that, the other people, age thing as we progress in our journeys that I think there is a perspective for you there that, that changed it's definitely changed for me yeah I think if you're doing the same thing for sure over and over again or you do it twice you kind of have the, the PTSD also from what happened before and then of course you know the traps and the risks and you try to anticipate those 
but ultimately I think things are always so different. Even if you're doing the same thing again, the circumstances are just completely different and there is no one formula, but yeah, I think for sure, the more experience you have, <clears throat> the scarier things can get. Totally. So you mentioned like the, if the context is different, if the environment is different, right? And you're going from the one thing to, to the other. I'm wondering though, like, and this is a total hindsight thing, right? Is which parts of Marie has actually kind of, as you've gone through those changes and doing different things, like which parts of Marie has actually evolved over time and which parts have stayed the same? Wow, that's a deep question. Which parts of me have evolved? I would say actually, well, the more risk averse side has evolved. I probably used to use it more just during work, like when I did M&A or strategy in a company or even new product development, it's all about risks, right? And you're, you're trying to minimize all those risks and uh, everything that you do. But I would say now that probably applies more to my life in general. Even if you evaluate moving, for example, there's, there's more of those risk lenses that I'll put on it. But overall, I wouldn't say, actually, no, there's, there's one thing. I would say that I've, I've gotten more comfortable with being myself. So when I was younger, I used to kind of have these different sides of myself that I would compartmentalize. For example, you know, working at a big company and kind of being like really kick-ass and like having this persona. And then my outside of work self, which was very creative and like spiritual and kind of strange and doing all this writing. And for some reason I had this fear about merging those two things. It was like a significant fear of, well, what if they know I write like, you know, raunchy comedy screenplays? Will I get fired or will people think of me differently? And I want to do well at work and have people think of me a certain way or like, you know, oh, I can't let them know I'm kind of spiritual or whatever. Like I have to just be very straight laced. And I think that prevented me actually from leaving my job for a long time. It kept me in it. And then once I left, I just realized it's just better to be your whole self. I think there's so much more richness that you bring. And that's what I do at work. I mean, I'm the same person at work as I am. If you like see me on the street or I tweet something, like it's all... It's all the same. And I think that just leads to a lot more harmony in your own kind of psyche. <laughs> so like emotional, mental harmony. For example, I was just on a call with the engineering team and we were all talking about Mercury retrograde. Because <laughs> yeah. a couple of people, well, we only discovered that a bunch of us believe in it because like I think I mentioned it because I'm just being my authentic self and it's funny too, right? The, the whole concept is funny. But you, you couldn't free other people either to be themselves if you're not yourself. So I think that's the, the most kind of seismic change that I've had. I'm very curious because I, I tend to agree with that last notion there, which is how do we free others around me, whether it's in a professional or a personal environment, up from being their truest selves when I'm not being my truest self, right? And it's almost a kind of very chicken egg situation, whereas I probably have to go first and that is the icebreaker. But that's also just very hard. I mean, I do not like going first in many contexts, right? I mean, one of the reasons, and I've often kind of shared this, but I don't know how publicly is, one of the reasons I like speaking at conferences is because afterwards people come up to me and they say, hey, AD, nice to meet you. Can I chat to you? Because I will not necessarily go up to someone and say, hey, I'm AD, who are you? I'm generally a shy person. So 
Do you have any thoughts about how we, as a kind of greater community, greater society, either kind of personally or in our teams or just in our kind of you know, home lives, like how do we spark that freedom or space for others or to movement, right? The catalyst, like what is the catalyst here for others, for all of us to be more of our truest selves? Yeah, I think one of the major things is working on your inner critic. And like for me, it still comes up, but you, the whole idea is to be present to it. So for example, I'll say something during a meeting and the critic comes up, right? And says, oh, you said the wrong thing or that was stupid or people judging you. I mean, there's that voice, right? It, it, it just basically constantly shits on you, right? And I think if you allow that voice to be really loud, then you won't take those risks or you, you know, you'll be afraid to be yourself and you'll come up with all these reasons and this kind of detailed rationale as to why you shouldn't be yourself. And I think as soon as you start to recognize the voice and you know, see it and realize that it's just like a protective mechanism and it's just all bullshit basically, and that it's holding you back, I think that helps a lot. I actually, there's a, a Buddhist meditation center called Spirit Rock, a little bit outside of San Francisco. And I went to a session there on the inner critic and it was, there were some really great things they actually taught. If you start to hear that kind of train of thought or that voice come up, you actually just state a fact and because it brings you out of the lies essentially. So you'll say like, oh, the, to yourself, oh, the sky is blue or, oh, I see a tree. And it just grounds you right away and takes you out of that kind of nonsense story. So I think that's been the single biggest thing is just judging yourself less and not blocking yourself through that protective mechanism. And again, I think, like I mentioned, the more that you do that, the less other people will also, you know, censor themselves. I think everybody has a different loudness of the inner critic too. Some people's is, you know, blaring and some people it's barely there. For me, it was blaring. It still like can go up really loud. Yeah. So I think that's that's the number one thing that I've I've kind of learned and done over time. Do you think that just your journey and your career has contributed to that, right? And kind of that was the catalyst to eventually realizing it or was it other way around, right? Where as you realize this and kind of that inner critic was there, it was probably stopping you from being your true self, doing some things. And then you purposely made changes according to that. Yeah, I kind of came across the inner critic because it always existed for me, regardless of what I was doing. I came across it just through meditating and becoming more present with myself and just really kind of seeing. So once you're more present, obviously, you can kind of observe your thoughts more and just seeing more of my inner landscape. So it wasn't that my career kind of brought me to it. It was more that almost just taking myself out of my career, <laughs> like, again, meditating, being present, brought me to see it. And now I'm able to at least see it and act on it where I can. But in no way have I kind of built up a bunch of confidence from my career. And then that happened. Like, I don't think of myself as only people that's like, oh, yeah, I did these five things. And now I can do it again. This time that that doesn't exist for me. It's I kind of, like I said, I just go into something and then I try not to judge myself as it's happening. That's interesting, right? Because do you feel like there's no confidence like when you're <laughs> like doing that? Uh, I mean, I have 
some innate confidence, but at the same time, I guess my major framework is actually all about learning. So I would say no matter what I'm doing, I'm kind of doing it because I'm driven to learn. And at the same time, I'm, my framework is that I'm learning. So it, it puts the pressure off in terms of mistakes because mistakes are part of learning. If you're not making mistakes, you're probably not learning a lot. It's probably just a very stagnant. And I always would say that too, like for jobs, if you're not learning anything, it's time, probably time to move on. So I almost go into it like with a beginner's mind, which alleviates all the pressure of knowing everything. And also just you're excited to keep learning and mistakes. That's fine. That, that just happens. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, at least makes sense to me, right? I think what I, what I heard there is like, we all have the innate ability to learn, right? And we don't need confidence to kind of just use a innate ability. And if the kind of primary lens through which we see these new pursuits is learning, then you probably need less confidence. And that mm -hmm. kind of, we don't need this bravado that we're taught from, you know, going from the one thing to the next, accumulating whatever this whether it's reputation, whether it's CV, whether it's capital, doesn't matter. We need less of that than mm -hmm. what we think we need. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't really need credentials to learn unless obviously it's like a very specialized scientific field where you need to keep building on your learning. But the very act of learning, like anyone can do. I think once you start to think through your experiences and really get into that to see if you can do something, it's like all a mental model and, and not based on reality anyway. So I, I just focus on what I'm learning and how I'm going to learn it. Yeah. I'm going to take you one step back and then I'm going to kind of, you bring us, you know, and listeners into kind of just the present day, right. And the things you're, you're working on today. So where I would love to kind of, you know, take you or, you know, you take the, the listeners here is those first couple of months when you were at Diageo, which I totally hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Yeah, Diageo, right? yeah. Uh, yeah, score for 80 there. Um, <laughs> by the way, you also had at one stage, you were director of tequila, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, I had a lot of really funny titles there. That has to be the most gangster, most awesome title without context ever. So, um, <laughs> but I was wondering, so at which stage you kind of, you know, made the decision to leave Diageo and especially because what came next has been all about kind of working on your own product. So can you take us back to that kind of moment in time where you made that decision? Like what were your considerations? What were, and well, let's start there. Like what were yeah. your considerations? Like what's yeah. that setting? And I guess just some context is I grew up, my parents were Russian refugees, um, Jewish Russian refugees, and they, they came to the U.S. in the 70s. And they really kind of hammered it into my brother and Maya's brains that we, we had to go into more kind of business or scientific fields. And we had to get master's degrees, MBAs <laughs> was the main thing. So it was like colleges, obviously you have to do that. Then you have to get an MBA. And there was a very kind of uh, clear path you had to take like science classes. I mean, it was very kind of strict in that sense. And you had to have a very stable job. And so I went about most of my career with that in mind, except the digression where I got a master's in English literature and kind of was the black sheep, maybe continue to be. Uh, but then I, I went back into business. And so the, for me, the big struggle was do I do what I've been kind of brought up to do and what I'm expected to do? Or do I follow my passion or just instinct? So 
uh, Diageo was a great place to work. It's the biggest spirits company in the world and uh, also beer too and used to be wine as well. And although I don't drink anymore, I mean, I used to really appreciate fine wine and whiskey and tequila, like all those things are my favorite. Fine dining and all those things go well together. And it was a very glamorous job. At one point I ran a joint venture with Diageo and Diddy, which was really fun. <laughs> that was a tequila brand too. Love Mexico and, and really you know enjoyed going there and just the craftsmanship of tequila. And I was constantly learning too. And of course the stability of a paycheck. So there are all these things keeping me. And at the same time, I was there for five years. And so for three of those years, I wanted to leave. And looking back on it now, I'm surprised that I, three years is a long time to want to leave and not leave. Really, for me, I wanted to be kind of more creative, more free. I was doing a lot of screenwriting. I just felt like, again, I mentioned earlier, like I didn't feel like a whole person in that job. But wow, it was difficult to go <laughs> because I had all those things in my head, like my parents will be disappointed, I'll be destitute, what will I do next? What if I fail? I mean, there was there were so many stories I had to break down for a long time. And the other more challenging thing was I was doing really well there and they kept giving me really cool jobs. So the last job I had, uh, I was running wine innovation in Napa and like who wouldn't want to do that, right? I was living in for a bit of it, like living in a house in the vineyard, just working with, you know, awesome winemakers and amazing people building brands and it was fascinating. I was learning so much and I was kind of more on a soul level or like an emotional level. I just wasn't really happy. And I knew there was something else that I wanted to do. I wish that I could say that it was on my volition, but it wasn't. Essentially, the part of the company I was in, the wine company, was sold. And since circumstances had changed so much and I didn't feel that kind of allegiance and loyalty anymore, like to this new buyer, I had it to my old company, but all the employees and the assets were sold. I decided that I could go now. Like it was basically, I, I thought of it as like the universe freed me essentially, <laughs> because it wasn't a choice between like my current life and my current employer and all these cool jobs they were giving me. It was like this new company that I didn't really want to be a part of. So it made leaving really easy for me. So it was more of like a external circumstance that allowed me to leave than a bunch of changes I made internally. That said, it still wasn't easy. Uh, I have one problem, not one problem, but like one kind of thing that I'm overcoming, which is I don't like to upset people or do something where I feel like they're disappointed in me, which helps me be really good at work because you don't want to, you know, you're working hard, you don't want to disappoint anyone. But then it can lead you to make certain decisions uh, slowly or you know, not do the best thing for you. So that was one of those circumstances where I, I could have probably made the decision easier. But yeah, that's, that's a long answer to your, your question. So what I'm wondering there is, and I know that these things are hard to answer, especially when it's such a binary thing, but do you think that kind of making that change from being employed to working for yourself, right? In whatever capacity, I'll keep things vague there. Do you think it would have been easier to make a jump between those two things had you started off like working for yourself? Because I think what you described there is probably not something dissimilar to what many people experience, right? So they start on a specific path and that path brings many good things, 
but there's that sense of this is not all that it's cracked out to be. That's it's not about like this is not hitting all the notes of the whole self here, and one needs to change. And often, I mean, again, being employed and being independent, striking your own. That's unfortunately a very binary example. There might be loads of different things on the spectrum. But do you think either path here, like or either starting point, more so, would have made that transition different, easier? Well, for me, so my dad had a, a small business, and so entrepreneurship was definitely something that I knew about, but more on the small business side. I, I lived in Connecticut and New York City for much of my life, and I was not exposed to startups and all these things. Uh, I wasn't exposed to tech. I, it, it wasn't like at all in my purview. I didn't know that this was a possibility. And so it almost made it easier when I saw that it was a possibility after I moved to San Francisco and met all these people in tech and uh, all these founders. And I realized, oh, there's like this whole new world I had no idea about. I need to go into that world. That's interesting. And I can learn. And there's so many amazing things that are different than, you know, working at like big kind of stodgy companies. So in that sense, it was easier. I think there are always challenges no matter what, whether you're even switching like from an established company to another one, it's almost like you just, you can make up a bunch of challenges. So I would say no matter what switch you're doing, it can be really challenging. And the key thing is to almost go through and decide what's a story and what's reality. Because I do think most of the things that slow us down or stop us are in fact stories that our minds are creating to protect us. Yeah, totally. And my biggest learning there, or the, the one that I go back to often is um, Brene Brown. I can't remember in which of her earlier books she talks about it, but she talks about that notion, especially in, in, in kind of arguments you know, with people is we make up what she calls a shitty first draft, mm. right? Like this is just my version of something. And then that's the lens with which I kind of you know, tackle whatever is at hand. And I think that's what I'm hearing you say is like, oftentimes when we're faced with a decision, the first draft is probably not the the, the most accurate version, right? There probably needs to kind of be, be peeled back and there needs to be greater clarity about what is this actual thing that I'm fearing or what is this actual thing that I think is going to be risky or challenging, et cetera, right? Because mm -hmm. like our intuition is not always great at having clarity around that. It might be about that there is something there to look at and investigate further, but it's not always kind of entirely clear about what this whole picture actually looks like. Yeah, it's not at all. I mean, our vision is so colored by whatever, <laughs> whatever we have going on, whether they're fears or certain risk tolerances or uh, judgments of yourself or something else. I mean, super simple pros and cons lists can help a lot. As silly as that sounds, they're a bit more unbiased because they're just based on fact, right? Like, oh, I'll get paid more or the people seem really nice or whatever it is, but they're facts. They're not like, oh no, I'm going to never get a job again because they'll switch paths. So I think pros and cons lists help. And sometimes, honestly, just writing down, if it's a decision that's tough, writing down all the stories that you have about it, that can help too. Um, and then going through objectively and being like, well, which of these are real? <laughs> Usually very few. It always, not always, but sometimes, you know, sounds so alien versus what we actually know. Like, it's just like, like why am I actually thinking this, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that, you know, on that note, because like, I agree, and I, the other thing that helped and has helped me make some significant change decisions in the past has been the kind of almost stoic mindset of thinking mm -hmm. through, like, if I do this, what is the absolute worst case? Mm -hmm. um, like, if that's something that's still, like, it's still not desirable, but it's at least palatable. Mm -hmm. 
then that's also kind of, you know, at least grease the wheels. And I don't always kind of, I don't think that's the only lens with which I view decisions, but that has helped remove, again, like, because it also breaks down those stories. Like, hey, this thing happens and so what? And interesting, mm-hmm. like, I'd love to share this because we share a connection and, you know, Heaton Shaw was, is now your co-founder. Heaton mm-hmm. was an advisor for Convergio and a, and a longtime friend. And way back in the day, and this takes me back about 10 years, and Heaton said, I was, I was faced with a decision in life, I'm in business. And he said, you know, AD, there's two kinds of people in this world, people that are confident in their ability to make money and people that aren't. And just that kind of that single nugget paired back so many of the things that I was telling myself as I needed to kind of make decisions. And I, again, like that play for me played into that notion of if the worst case scenario is that this thing fails, am I confident enough and just my ability to, to learn again, to be agile, to be flexible, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, it's good. I, as far as frameworks go, you want to be as simple as possible. <laughs> So I, I, I like that one a lot. And then if you're in that second bucket of people who aren't confident, for example, about making money, figure out why. Well, what's stopping? What's blocking that confidence? Yeah. Or just change the question completely, right? Yeah. That's always the, the always the kind of plan C. So I'm going to take you kind of you know, to present day, as I promised, and fast forwarding to or at least rewinding from where we are now, but um, at least from your journey from Diageo to January this year, you're not well nominated awarded product maker of the year right mm-hmm. um i would love to know like that moment in time that you learned that you were getting this golden kitty award which mm-hmm. you know alongside uh, kind of being director of tequila is is a pretty gangster <laughs> gangster <laughs> kind of name for award but take me back to the moment like you know when did you learn that you're kind of you're, you're getting the award and how did it feel i had no idea by the way i think i had gotten an email that someone nominated me i think and I thought, oh, okay. Like, I, I didn't think anything. And then Heaton messaged me, actually, was what happened. And he was like, you're not going to believe this. Because I, I didn't look at the email. And then he showed me. And I was like, I was probably just more shocked and surprised than anything. I definitely, like we talked about the inner critic, I definitely am one of those people that thinks I don't do enough. That's part of probably what drives me, too. Uh, is like, oh, you didn't accomplish enough or you didn't, you didn't do enough. So my first instinct was more from the like inner critic of like, what? <laughs> you know, uh, Not like, yeah, I deserve this. This is great. Just more kind of surprise and shock. And um, it took me a little bit to, to let it sink in and accept it. Probably still haven't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's my follow-up question, right? I mean, like, do you think it's changed the way you see yourself does, has changed the way you've approached your work, changed the way you've done things ever since. Because I think for, for listeners that aren't familiar, I think this is a big deal generally in, in the tech space. I mean, I don't think that that kind of, you know, award comes, it's not given you know, to someone for no reason at all, right? I mean, it's a significant thing. So I'm wondering, like, has anything changed for you ever since? It's been like a crazy year, as you, you know, as everybody knows. So... Maybe it would have changed something if we weren't like, you know, rushed into the pandemic and like everything kind of went crazy. I think if anything, it makes me feel like I have to do more to live up to the the title continuously. I mean, last year we launched a ton of stuff on Product Hunt and like made a lot of a lot of tools and I think this year, it just makes me, 
it almost is like something my critic is using to say, oh, Marie, you should be doing more, except there's a pandemic, so it's okay, you'll do more soon. <laughs> I think that's the only thing. It's probably made me feel like I have to live up to that title more. I, ha I feel like after this podcast, I have so many things I get to work on because I, I mean, like I always know they're there, but I, I don't take the time to kind of talk about them. So this will be fun. <laughs> yeah. Just before we, we started off, right, we, we were speaking about making lists and eventually checking things off. So it's good to know that organically you, you've made a list here already as well. Yes. Um, <laughs> That was not planned, right? This is not uh, supposed to be an accountability session. Um, <laughs> no, but I appreciate it. So sometimes titles can give you more confidence. Like, you know, when I won some, some comedy writing awards, that helps, especially in writing, because it's so easy to just shit on yourself about writing. And it's such a kind of subjective thing, right? Like, it, it's just, it's draining. It, difficult to write uh, and feel really confident about, about what you did. So in that sense, those awards really helped me because it was like, okay, on an objective sense, this means that I'm good or decent or, you know, some people read it and thought, yes, like this is better than other things. But then when it comes to a title like maker of the year, I mean, I'm super humbled to have won that and still in shock. But it doesn't make me feel like, yes, I'm good at, you know, X <laughs> for some reason. So I think it just depends on the accolade that you get and how your your psyche takes it in. So this one is just more of do more, do more, Marie. Come on now, now you get to do more. <laughs> I'll stay unbiased on, on you know that point. I I'll let you think about kind of that <laughs> after this and, and think about whether that's the, the most optimal path to take. What I what I'm worrying about here, Marie, is just the term maker in general has been mm -hmm. at, at least as far as I'm aware, has only been a term that in the recent path has become a thing. And I don't think it probably not, unless you can educate me otherwise, I don't think that's a tech-centric thing either. I mean, I think it's this catch-all phrase in terms of people making things. But I was wondering, like, in terms of as far as labels go, like, like what does being a maker actually mean to you? Mm. Yeah, I think the term maker came from, like, the craft space more like the, the kind of more Etsy style stuff of you're making more like physical goods. And you're right, like it's grown obviously a, a ton in terms of popularity in the, in the tech space. You know, for me, it's, it's more about learning. So like when I think about being a maker, I think about the very kind of act of creation and learning when you're first doing it. And sorry, I hear my dog snoring. So hopefully you know, everybody can't hear it, but I have a, a small dog that uh, really enjoys that I work from home and also likes to snore. But yeah, it's, it's really just about the process of learning from customers, learning from creating the thing. And for me, it's not so much like, oh, I made this thing, I feel so good. It's more just that entire process because it's really never ending either. Being a maker means that you're gonna go back to the thing that you created and keep iterating it, especially obviously in tech where we have the capability to do that. It's not like a physical good. So it's this kind of never ending process of learning. So learning is something I've heard you say quite a few times, right, in our conversation. Would you word, if you, explain this to someone else, like, would you say learning is a personal value? Well, yeah, I think so. I think it's just to always be learning and also having that kind of beginner's mind learning mindset at all times. Because 
if you go into something thinking you know how to do it already, that you're just closing off opportunities to be able to learn something new. So yeah, it's definitely a personal value and like a company value too. I mean, we're a small team, 13 people right now, and I want to make sure everybody else cares about learning because that's that's what we do, right? That's that's what we're doing on the job. That's what drives us. How do you do that? Maybe extrapolate it somewhat, right? Because learning is also something you physically do. But if you, for example, if we said that a personal value is you know being vulnerable, for example, right? I mean that's something a little kind of more of a softer skill or a softer action, right? It's not necessarily a clear thing. Like how how do you encourage that? within a team like if you say that this is a thing that at least is a shared value or shared interest of ours like how do you align the team around something like that yeah i think one of the most important aspects of learning is asking questions and that can obviously be allowed or like you ask somebody a question right or you pose a question to yourself silently so i think the freedom to ask questions and explore something is really important. And so one way to do that is you just demonstrate it yourself. Some people maybe think asking questions, it, it's like uh, puts you in a state where it seems like you don't know something, but that's okay. <laughs> so I think, you know, asking questions, also encouraging discussions where, you know, there's not like a wrong thing to say. You're kind of exploring the idea or coming to a shared understanding. That's another really important thing. And there's just also like the, if somebody's really passionate about something, I mean, giving them the space to learn about it. So like, you know, giving people projects that they really like, asking them what they want to learn, just giving them the space for that, I think is just really important for the team. Yeah, I really like that notion of space. And it's something that you know, has been at the forefront of my mind as well, you know, especially as we kind of encourage and help those around us to kind of be more of their true selves. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely kind of of the mindset that a rising tide lifts all boats here. And that especially, I think so much of what we're traditionally taught in business, for example, is that, you know, we need to, to get efficiency and productivity and all those things, we need conformity. And what I actually think is, if we can create that space for everyone to truly show up as their, you know, unique, beautiful selves, doesn't matter how different that is, like, if one can align around this shared interest or goal, like, I think that's where the magic happens, right? That's alchemy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if people are hiding themselves or just not that excited, they're not going to do as good of work or be as happy as if they're free to be themselves and they're free to make mistakes and they're free to kind of ask questions and understand things and free to not know something. So, yeah, I think it's super important. Otherwise, conformity is just going to breed not really great performance. Cool, Mariso. Before we end off, one kind of last question here. Answer this in any way that you'd like, right? So no specific lens or, or lane to stay in here. But um, what can we expect from you kind of going forward? Like what's, you know, what's some of those things that's already on your radar that you're, that you're thinking about for some time in the future? Yeah. Well, expect me to do a bunch of self-work after this. <laughs> I mean, I do that all the time. But I feel like I've just lined up like six months worth of things to contemplate and meditate on and work on so that... So expect me to be really confident. If you you know you talk to me in six months, I'll the inner critic will be even more quiet. <laughs> I think I'll, I mean on a like more world practical level, you know, working on a lot of team features with FYI, 
And there's a bunch of really exciting things that we're launching soon and will continue to launch. So that that's super exciting just in terms of work life. I'm on a crystal buying hiatus, so no, my crystal collection won't grow. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's something that will not change. That's good. I've been on a plant thing, though, because of coronavirus. I think everyone is. Apparently, you have to rush to Etsy and hope that the plants you want are available. But I'm on a plant buying hiatus, too, now. So <laughs> just expect a lot of great stuff from FYI and then just a better version of me in the future, too. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's pretty great. I mean, Marie, thanks so much for your time. If anyone, for a listener, kind of wanted to follow along with either your plant buying, the self-work or the results of the self-work, or just kind of what you're doing with FI, where should they catch you? So they can catch me on Twitter, Marie Prokopetz, M-A-R-I-E-P-R-O-K-O-P-E-T-S. You can tell that I was not in tech when I got my Twitter handle or my Instagram one, which is Marie12Isabel, I-S-A-B-E-L. So yeah, they're, they're all different. They're, some of them are long. They don't make sense. And then in terms of FYI, you can go to usefyi.com to sign up and see what we're up to. Awesome. Well, since I've been in tech, I'll make sure that this is linked up and thank nobody you. needs to, to, to guess all of those. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah thanks. Marie, thanks so much for your time today and thanks for this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. This is great. That's it for me for today's episode. If anything in today's conversation really resonated with you, please do send me an email on ad at lifeprofitability.com. That's A-D-I-I at lifeprofitability.com. You can also leave a review on iTunes, which helps me to improve the show and perhaps also helps me to reach someone else that needs to hear this or might find this helpful. I'll be back here with another great guest next week. Cheers. Cheers.